Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Today we're starting a new series based on Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, wherein we'll consider a number of idols that vie for worship in our society. In this episode, we consider Aphrodite, the ancient goddess of love and her modern counterparts. I know what you're thinking, Sean, nobody worships Aphrodite today. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Idolatry is a lot subtler than most of us realize. As I think, if you, if you listen to this, you will soon come to see. We begin by examining that somewhat dysfunctional love story of Jacob and Rachel in the book of Genesis. We conclude that love and romance are goods God has given his people, but they should not be our ultimate good or our ultimate pursuit or what we look to for salvation. In addition, Rose gets fired up and rebukes the tendency among some Christians, to hold out romance and marriage to singles as an ultimate goal to find completion. Dan also shares some great advice about attracting a godly spouse. Whether you are married or single, this off-script episode will help you think through the proper place you should have for romantic love in your life. Here now is off-script episode 23, Worshiping Love. Today we're starting a new series for off-script looking at various idols that we worship. And this is inspired by Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And today we want to begin by looking at the goddess of love. I was thinking of the ancient goddess of love, Aphrodite, and I looked up some information on her just to get us thinking about this idea because there actually was a goddess of love or romance. And Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and pleasure. Her origin story is one of the more unusual. Kronos apparently had severed Uranus's genitals and threw them behind him into the sea. The foam from his genitals gave rise to Aphrodite, hence her name, which means foam arisen. Did you want to say something? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, is that what is he talking like? Foam from his jet. What is the foam? <laughs> I was confused. I don't know what the foam is, but that's that's what Wikipedia says where where she got her beginning. What's interesting about Aphrodite is that she, according to the mythology, has no childhood, but she comes into being as an adult. She's often depicted nude in a flawless form, and Zeus, who's kind of like the chief god, right, fears that. Aphrodite's beauty is going to cause problems, mm. that people are going to fight over her and it's going to cause a rivalry. So he forces her to marry Hephaestus, the god of smithing, who is an ugly, even-tempered god. As a result of that, she often cheated on him. So she did marry this not good-looking god, but then cheated on him with Adonis and Ares. Ares is the equivalent of the Roman Mars, and that's, of course, the god of war. And so she was attracted to his violent nature. So how often, it's just crazy how relevant this is today. I mean, obviously, Aphrodite probably has no worshipers today mm. in one sense. But in another sense, mm -hmm. how often have you heard a story of a strikingly attractive woman who has all kinds of good options before her, but chooses a violent person or somebody who is obviously bad for her over against all the other options and then suffers ruin because of it against her father's wishes, mm. which is Zeus in this case. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. Right? So, of course, even if we don't have the statue and these sorts of things are relegated to museums today, the sentiment remains. Mm. And there is so much in our culture pointing towards this idea of finding love as an ultimate pursuit in life as opposed to something that is good for you, this is something that defines you. Mm -hmm. And that if you're in a couple, then you're a complete person. Even just the creation of those gods from that society was reflective of the society and reflective of the, of the values of the society and the things that man um, innately desires and values and idolizes. 
I think, you know, the gods being what they were was itself a commentary of the values and the desires of its time. Yeah, gods are an allegory, right, for mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. Well, in order to, to get this conversation really going, let's take a look at a biblical example, Jacob and Rachel. Would either of you like to get started on that? Sure. So this record's found in uh, Genesis 29. The story goes that Jacob essentially stole his older, older brother's birthright, and his older brother Esau said that he would kill him because of that. And so Jacob fled the area that he was in and went to another area where his extended family lived. He met Rachel, fell in love with her, and met his uncle Laban, who said that he could marry Rachel if he worked for him for seven years. So he did that, but Laban, in a treacherous turn of events, gave him his other daughter, Leah, who wasn't as attractive as Rachel. But Jacob had already consummated the, the marriage, and he had to work another seven years. And he finally got Rachel, but Rachel was barren, and Leah was prolific in bearing children. I think she had four children, whereas Rachel had none. But it says in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel, and not so much with Leah. What stands out to me, Dan, in this account is where it says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days mm. because of the love he had for her. I mean, like you said, he, he was on the run from his family because he had cheated his brother. His parents were against each other in playing favorites, right? And so his mother had told him to go in and pretend like he was his brother and all that. So there's all kinds of parental discord and brotherly discord in his home life. Yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> By the time he gets to Laban, he's in, really in a precarious situation because he's a single man. He can't really go home. He's a wanted man. He's Yeah, he's wanted. Esau may come track him down or he might not. He doesn't know. And so either Laban helps him out or he's going to be totally on his own in a world where it's not easy to be on your own, a very tribal kind of world. And so he's he's looking for love, mm -hmm. you know, and he sees this girl and she's just gorgeous and he just falls for her. Just like the modern sense of like falling in love at first sight even. And it says it was just like a few days, all those years, toil out in the weather, working with animals. And it was just like, oh, it just feels like a few days. And their first encounter, it says, uh, Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And then she went and told her dad that Jacob was in town. Yeah. Right from the get-go, it was like a sort of love at first sight thing. Not only is this a love story, but it's it, there are subtle indications that Jacob didn't just love Rachel. He didn't just desire her. He didn't just appreciate her. He was overwhelmed with his affection for her to such a degree that he was a bit crass himself. When the years were completed, he said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. You know, it's just sort of like a very yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> mechanical it's, way of describing it. He said what he was thinking. Yeah. And even by today's standards, you would never say that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go into my woman. Give so. me your daughters. I, 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 I want to sleep with her. Right, right. So he's sort of lovesick. And those of us who know the story... This family with Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and then eventually with Zilpah and Bilhah as well, these four women and this one man, ends up producing 13 kids, the 12 sons and the one daughter. And this dysfunction that is at the root of the situation in Jacob's heart, really, and then extends outwards from him to all these other people, it ends up playing itself out in the lives, not only of his wives, but of his children. And there's so many miseries this man suffers such that at the end of his life he goes and he, he finally gets down to egypt and he meets pharaoh and he says few and evil have been the days of my sojourning mm. he's like over 100 years old mm -hmm. <laughs> he's yeah. like look i'm not as old as my parents were or their parents and my my basically my life has stunk <laughs> yeah. and, and that's how he summarizes it himself yeah. 
after getting his son back, who he thought mm-hmm. was dead because of the favoritism he showed to his mm-hmm. kids because of his wives. And even he is bearing the consequences of the choices of the future generation. Right. Favoritism, like, you know, ran through that family. Their his parents, His parents struggled with it. They more, you know, had favorite sons. He went on to have favorite wives. Generation to generation, this kind of dysfunction um, can be propagated in a family. Tim Keller makes the point, if you get married as Jacob did, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings on the person you are marrying, you are going to crush him or her with your expectations. It will distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. You're going to think you have gone to bed with Rachel and you will get up and it will always be Leah. This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but we especially feel it in the things upon which we most set our hopes. And so what Keller's saying here is that if you make love, pursuing romance in particular, your ultimate aim, it cannot but disappoint you and leave you with disillusionment. And there are only so many ways you can respond to that. You can try to find another more satisfying person. This one didn't work out, but the next one will. Or you can beat yourself up and say, oh, well, I'm such a loser and I, I, messed, I messed up this relationship. Or you can blame the world and say, the world's a cold, dark place and the opposite sex is all evil and, and become a cynic. Or last of all, you can change your focus, put it on God mm-hmm. and make God the one you pursue with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then these other relationships have a chance to work out. Mm. But that's very counterintuitive because we think, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you think, if I give that person my absolute devotion, I work my hardest for them, I do everything with them in mind, then that relationship will flourish, right? You work really hard at it and you give attention to it, it's going to, it's going to flirt, but it doesn't. That's the central insight here in this idol of love. You can't pursue love as if it is an ultimate thing. If, if you, you can pursue love, but in light of God being the source of everything that is good, and then you'll be okay. And that relationship, ironically, paradoxically, will end up better than if you just sold everything out for that one person because they, they cannot bear it. It's too much on them. People are flawed. We're all flawed. Did you guys notice Leah's kids? The names? Yeah. Yeah. So Reuben is the first one. Reuben is the Hebrew. It means, see, a son. Isn't that crazy? She calls her first kid, look, a son. In case you didn't notice, Jacob, I have your firstborn <laughs> yeah. son over here. Firstborn son over here, right? And uh, It's a bit on the nose. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. This just tears my heart yeah, out. It's, I, it's, I mean, Leah, is, she doesn't do anything wrong. And she's just a victim of the, the, the system, right? The, the patriarchal system, like her dad is the one that slips. She probably didn't want to go in the tent. Right. I'm sure yeah. she didn't, obviously. Because, yeah, because you, you're obviously participating in this, in this subterfuge and, and you're going to mess this guy up. Yeah, well, you know your husband is going to be super disappointed when he realizes it's you. And then when your father is disposing of you like trash, like oh, yeah. Yeah. You, haven't, you have no positive. You know, what's crazy is that that's very similar to what Jacob did to his father. He, yes. he pulled the switcheroo in the yeah. dark, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it, Jacob gets Jacobed here. Right. But that's a side point. So with Leah, her second son is Simeon, and that sounds like the word for herd. Shema is the word for herd. And so she says for her secondborn son, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And it just tears my heart out. Mm-hmm. She's using sex and reproduction to earn her husband's affection. And that's like that old saying, right? Men use love to get sex. Women use sex to get love. I think that is a little bit more our culture now where it's less about procreation. But back then it was, you know, you give your husband the best sons and the most sons, you'll get head wife status. I think it was expected in a lot of places. But in this case where I guess Jacob was more of a romantic um, in that sense when it came to, to Rachel, it didn't really work out for Leah in the traditional way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Leah's doing everything she can to get his attention. And then her third son is Levi, and he starts the um, garment company, 
that later <laughs> produces jeans. Yes, I'm wearing a pair of his jeans. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. His name sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. And she says about him, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And then some time passes, and then her fourth son, Judah, sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. And for this one, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite one. It's almost like uh, she gave up. It doesn't say this, but it, it could be implied that she gave up thinking that these sons would cause Jacob to love her. And now she was just like, you know what? I'm just going to praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this name is not about her and her husband. The other names were all about her and her husband and sort of the pitiful tension that they were experiencing. This one is just about her and God. And there's wholeness and, and there's healing in this name. Right. And Judah, of course, becomes the chief tribe out of which the Messiah eventually comes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the Messiah is not through Rachel. The Messiah is through the weak-eyed Leah. Yeah. Whatever that meant weak eyes to me that that is so beautiful i love how god elevated elevated her yeah you read through the genealogy of christ and you see so many uh underdogs and misfits and the people Mm -hmm. that we choose are very often not the people god chooses in this case is no different If, if i think about jacob for a moment here's somebody who's lost everything and he saw in rachel a ray of hope he saw in her like, if I could just have her, then everything would work out, work out for me in life. Now, I, re- I realize the text doesn't specifically say that, mm-hmm. but the text does events a sort of desperation that Jacob has. I mean, the bride price is not seven years' labor. I mean, that's an extraordinarily high bride price. Tim Keller in his book it indicates that the a normal bride price would be two years' labor because he says it was almost four times the typical bride price so laban realizes the uh, desperation realizes right. the attraction and capitalizes on yeah, it. Totally. yeah totally yeah and it was interesting too is laban never actually says yes yeah he said it would be good if you married her rather than me give her to another man right which it is would sort be. of yeah hypothetically oh, he definitely yeah. implied it <laughs> yeah like, he implies it but he doesn't actually bind himself to it right yeah. it's a pr speak yeah uh. <laughs> yeah I, I don't know if we're reading too much into that or not but it's like Laban is really a snake in the grass. He is, yeah. And well, I think it was a common thing to keep, I mean, marrying your cousin was kind of what you did back then. Like, I kind of think you'd almost have first rights to your cousin. So I would have expected Laban to say that. But he, yeah, he doesn't come out and say, oh, definitely, she'll be yours. Right. And we know later on, I mean, other than the Leah switcheroo, he doesn't just give him Rachel. He forces another seven years on him. And then after that, he doesn't let them leave he, he, he requires him to work another, I think, six years to get any possessions out of the deal. So he gets like 20 years out of Jacob before Jacob is set up and ready to become his own man and the head yeah. of his own household. And then Laban tries to chase him down, and God has to intervene <laughs> to, with, with Laban. Be like, you touch him, and it's not going to be good for you, buddy. And then Laban does catch up, but then he's like, all right, I just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> so this whole thing with Laban is, is re- he's really bad news from the start. Jacob doesn't see it. Jacob is completely lovesick and blind. Like he really believes if he could just have Rachel, if I could just have Rachel, then all, then I, my soul will find healing. My life will have purpose. I will have, uh, we will be able to have beautiful children. Those children will have wonderful lives. And what ends up happening? She's barren. Mm-hmm. He gets Leah, then she's barren. Then he doesn't have any money. So that's a problem. He gets he gets some money. Now he's got to migrate. Now he's got to worry about his brother. And so then he, you know, she has Joseph. He favors Joseph. Joseph gets killed by his brothers or so he thinks. Right? Now he's only got Benjamin. When Benjamin's born, she dies. Mm. Right? Like the whole thing's a train wreck from beginning to end. Yeah. Everything between Jacob and Rachel turns out badly. Mhm. And he dies, an old, miserable man. And he's one of the f- founders of the faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is like looking at Genesis. You always have to discern, is this a positive example or a negative mm. example? Is this mm-hmm. something I'm supposed to imitate or something to warn me of what not to do? And I feel like the vast majority are negative examples. <laughs> yeah, that's what's so cool about the Bible. It's not afraid of that. 
I can personally testify to the sense of sand running through my fingers when it comes to this subject of chasing romance. When I was a teenager, there was this girl, her name was Kim. I was about 14, so was she. And she had curly blonde hair. And uh, she was just the prettiest girl in the world. And I, I thought she, and it was the first time I really had this intense emotional attachment for somebody. We, and we were, and she was from Syracuse and I was at like some event or something and I, and I saw her and I was like, oh man. She was your Rachel. She was my Rachel <laughs> at, at that time. <laughs> and I started to become infatuated with her. And then there was this dude named Zach. Oh man. <laughs> and Zach and was. And it becomes a love triangle. The other guy. <laughs> Zach was, he goes from Florida and he was older he was like 16 17 so you already got that on you he had a license (laughs) oh man he listened to rap music i mean he was so far advanced beyond anything i had and he liked her too and you know what she went with him instead of with me Hmm. and it was just devastating did i say to myself wow i should really have protected my heart not gotten so wrapped up in this situation especially when we never even dated in the first place. It was all in my head. Mm. And no, I did not say that. Instead, I, I just kind of lived through the devastation until the next girl came along. And then I fell in love with that one. And um, throughout high school, I had one pretty serious girlfriend in uh, 10th and 11th grade. And I went, went through the full range of emotions with her, where starting with infatuation and then moving into just kind of like taking her for granted. And then beyond, this is all within a year. And then beyond that to the grass is greener on the other side. And there was this other girl. And it's like, look, man, I'm coming up to my senior year. If I'm going to make a move, I better make it before high school ends. And I, I broke up with, with like my long-term girlfriend in high school to pursue this other girl. And so that's, that's the full cycle. You know, you, you see yeah. the girl at first, you're like, oh, I really like what, I'm, what I see. You talk to her, it gets to know her, you get that infatuation, and then it's like a wave that passes over you, and then what's left? Well, you move on to the next one. It's no longer new and exciting, and right. that's what the cycle that, that we're talking about, where you, you put your hope in these things, and ultimately they let you down, and you go in search of something else. Yeah. To the degree that I participated in this cycle and it happened over and over. I mean, I was, I was in love with being in love as, as a teenager, uh, especially in, in, in my early 20s. And w- what I ended up doing was worshiping Aphrodite. I would mm. never have admitted that, but that's what I was doing. I was worshiping at her altar. I was dedicated to pursuing romance. I was uh, consistent in my pursuit. I sacrificed my guy friends on the altar of Aphrodite, the fact that they never let me forget. (laughs) I uh, sometimes was so distracted and intoxicated by love that I failed to pay attention in class. If it came down to spending time with a girlfriend or doing my homework, come on, I chose the girl. I was utterly unbalanced. Of course, I also believe in God. I'm I'm going to fellowships and stuff like that, but I haven't quite made a decision, hey, I'm going to follow Christ yet. Um, and so I led an unbalanced life where I didn't recognize this feeling of love that I had as a gift from God. I looked at it as basically God itself, and I served it as if I was serving a God. The idol will always break your heart. Yeah. And my heart got broken over and over and over and over. And I bet if you interviewed any of those girls that I was with, every one of them would say I was a lousy boyfriend. Not for a lack of effort on my part. Mm. I just didn't know how to be good because I was pursuing the wrong thing. I, I think of my relationship now. I've been married for 13 years, and you know, you have all the fireworks of the emotions in that in that early, however long it lasts. I'm sure everybody's different, and, and different personalities experience the in love feeling in different ways too. But what I have now is so much deeper than. What I had in the past, I mean, it's, it's really almost like you would use different words to describe it all together mm. because like my life is not based on my wife. I don't say to myself every day, well, I wonder what Ruth thinks. I hope, I hope, she, I hope she approves of what I'm doing. And because I don't do that, because I live for God, I'm a better husband to her than if I was living for her. Right. Mm-hmm. 
which is counterintuitive. You wouldn't think it would be that way. Yeah. Keller in his book quotes two Jewish scholars who concluded that the Bible is essentially a rejection of idolatry. You have all of these stories and they're all saying the same thing, that there is no God besides me. And when you prop up gods in place of Yahweh, this is what you get. I just think there's so much freedom in not being idolized by a romantic partner. It's an unattainable goal. And I think if you, even if you realize you are in that relationship, you have to, um, you have to help your partner with realistic expectations because your failure in their eyes is inevitable. That's a prison uh, to be idolized in that sense. Um, I think it's important. I mean, it's important to realize if you're doing it to someone, but that, I mean, that is the greatest disservice you can do them. And then to try to live up to those expectations, like it's failure waiting to happen. And I think, I mean, I think you can heal all those things. I think you can heal your relationship to a healthy point where it's based on God. But I do think it's important to realize uh, either if you are idolizing someone or if someone else is idolizing you to step back, give it to God, and then bring the relationship to a healthy point. Sorry to keep going back to Keller, but <laughs> he, he taught a sermon once that I listened to that, that was about this idea. And he said that he actually did this to his wife. He would get her, after, after he preached every Sunday, he would ask his wife what she thought about his sermon. And sometimes she would say, you know, it was great. And then, and he would feel validated by that. And then the other times, sunlight came out. Yeah. Then other times, uh, she would, you know, sort of be, uh, wishy-washy about it. Yeah. And, and he would know, and that would bother her. And finally she said to him, you can't put this on me. You can't have this expectation. Like your sermon is between you and God. And, uh, you have to get your validation from him, mm-hmm. you know, not from me. And that's when he realized that he was doing this to her. Yeah. I don't often quote Augustine. But when you do. <laughs> <laughs> the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Augustine. Uh, or as many Americans say, Augustine. Uh, but because I disagree of so much with what he said in so many areas, and I really don't like his Neoplatonism. But Who does? <laughs> I mean, come on, Sean. <laughs> but he had some significant insights into human desire. He's the most self-aware person of antiquity. And he wrote this book called The Confessions, which is pretty fascinating. It's, it's, it's a really interesting book, although in some places he does ramble. Um, but anyhow, he, I just want to quote from... This is the most famous part of his book, the, the very first words of it, where he says, To praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Who will enable me to find rest in you? Who will grant me that you come to my heart and intoxicate it so that I forget my evils and embrace my one and only good, yourself? There is such wisdom there Mm -hmm. god i mean recognizing that god is our creator is huge because that means that he knows what he was doing when he made us he had some purpose some intention in making us and he made us for himself to have relationship with him and the, the whole idea is that in praising him we find our satisfaction and purpose finally met that we're i mean you can find bits of purpose to a certain extent in anything you do, whether it's eating a meal or working hard or laughing after a good joke. I mean, you, you, you get, we get satisfaction out of all kinds of things, mm-hmm. but there's always this sand running through your fingers aspect to whatever pleasure it is in life we're talking about. And only when our restless hearts find rest in God do we find something big enough to plug that hole within us. Mm-hmm. What we do with the romance, or what I did, especially as, as a younger person with the romance, is, is just like I kept putting more sand in thinking that will, keep my, that will keep me full, but the sand is too thin. It keeps running out the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know? It's interesting that that is the, I mean, if you will, symbiotic relationship, that you worshiping God as all he is, is the healthiest thing you can do. And that's, you know, that's not an equals position at all, far from it. Whereas um, it, being in, the, in like a romantic relationship and idolizing each other, that can be incredibly unhealthy and not even close to symbiotic. That can be damaging both ways. 
Um, it's interesting. I didn't, that quote sounded familiar, Sean, and it's a song by Audrey Assad. It's called Restless Till I Rest in You. And I'm sure it's based off of that, but that was a song that has had impact on me. So, so Augustine speaks to you already. <laughs> you didn't even know it was through today's pop music. Yes. Despite his Neoplatonism. Mm, despite it. Yeah. Another thing Augustine says in his confessions in, uh, in book 10, paragraph 22, he says, there is a delight which is given not to the wicked, but to those who worship you for no reward, save the joy that you yourself are to them. That is, and I love this, the authentic, happy life to set one's joy on you, grounded in you and caused by you. That is the real thing and there is no other. Mm -hmm. So this is like the classic idea of gift versus giver. Like, are you in it for what God gives you or are, in, are you in it for God himself? Because if your focus is what God gives you, you're, you're commercializing the relationship. Mm -hmm. If you're in it for because you genuinely love God and you find your joy in God, then everything else finds its proper place. You can enjoy that intoxicating in love feeling and it doesn't destroy you or the other person. You can enjoy the, the good meal without living for food. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you can enjoy whatever pleasure it is. Those pleasures are designed by God, but they're all pointers or arrows that go back to him rather than ends in themselves. This is something that I don't hear much about in Christianity. And yet it's all over. I mean, once, once you start thinking of it like this, you see it all over the culture mm. where people are pursuing the career and they sacrifice their family on the altar. And you also see that earlier in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac, Abraham was promised a son. He waited years and years and years to the point that it didn't seem possible anymore. And then Isaac came along and you could pose the question of, was Abraham faithful because of what God gave him, his son, or the payoff of his son eventually mm -hmm. with the promise? Or did he love God because he wanted to love and worship his creator? And that's what happened. God asked him to give it up. He finally got what he wanted, his heart's desire, and it was a test of which one was his priority, his son or God. Right. And what happens is that he gives up his most prized love for God, and he gets God and his son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. Like if you, if you sacrifice your talent for the sake of God, God will redeem your talent to be used for his glory. It's not like he's going to destroy us and make us all the same. Mm -hmm. He wants to use us with our individuality and our uniqueness, but if we do it to his glory, then we find a better life for yeah. ourselves. But it is paradoxical. <laughs> totally paradoxical. Like, like so much of the Bible is. Right. Right. I would never have the wisdom to figure any of this out, honestly. Like I, I just stumble upon it and I'm just like, oh. Yeah. Then I look over my own life and I'm like, yeah. I mean, I, I remember having these conversations with Ruth when we were engaged. And it's just like, look, we have to put God first. Like, like I've got all the, the hormones and chemistry and everything else coursing through my veins. This is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. Never wanted to marry anyone else. I, I was in the relationship. I was just like, you're the one. And yet still, it was like, all right, but we're going to have God first. And she's like, yes, let's have God first. And we, and we, we agreed to that. Mm -hmm. And so on good days... It works, and on bad days, it works. Mm -hmm. I don't give up, right? I don't go to despair if, if I'm having relational conflict. Like, we're both committed to work it out because we're concerned about God. There's a third party, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's not like this infinite feedback loop that just can either implode or explode when something's out of balance. More on this paradox of, of giving up to gain. In Matthew 16, and these are common verses. Um, we've heard them many times, but I think it's, um, it ties in well to this point. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Give up your idols. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We realize that too. Um, when, when we give up the desires of our hearts to God, I mean, he will often conform our desires to his will, but often you will get back what you wanted, but in a, in a healthier way, when God is at the center of your heart. And Jesus certainly did that throughout his life. Yeah. I mean, he gave up everything, literally. And he got it all back. Yeah. Right? Because he gives up even life itself and gets back 
on the other side of the cross, the resurrection. Uh, and the immortalized mode of existence yeah. that we have no clue what it <laughs> right. entails. And you see this idea in, in big ways, like the Jesus example, and in smaller ways, like Daniel. I mean, he, he was captured, taken to Babylon, and instead of having the, the king's choice meat, the king's choice food, he asked for vegetables and water. He sought God first, mm-hmm. and his appearance was better than that of the, of the ones that had the king's choice food, and, and he was elevated eventually to extreme power in the main kingdom of the time. All right, one last Augustine quote. This is from The City of God, book 15, paragraph 22. Now, physical beauty, to be sure, is a good created by God, but it is a temporal good, very low in the scale of goods. Can you imagine saying that today? I mean, everything is so focused on appearance. I mean, from social media to billboards to internet ads to TV shows and airbrushed magazines. I mean, physical beauty is alive and well. But here he's saying, look, it's a temporal good. It's, it's, it's not even that high on the scale of goods. And he goes on to say, if it is loved, if physical beauty is loved in preference to God, the eternal, spiritual, and unchangeable good, that love is as wrong as the miser's love for gold with the abandonment of justice, though the fault is in the man, not in the gold. This is true of everything created. Though it is good, it can be loved in the right way or in the wrong way. In the right way, that is, when the proper order is kept, in the wrong way, when that order is upset. And so the, the whole idea of ordered loves, if we put God at the top of the list, we can pursue other goods in their rightful order and get what joy and pleasure and satisfaction we can out of them without this sense of devastation and disillusionment. We don't think they're going to fully satisfy us, so then when they don't fully satisfy us, when we're hungry again after a good meal or feel bloated, we don't say to ourselves, oh, you know, what's the point of my life? Yeah. Mm. One thing I want to talk about that is very prevalent in female Christian circles, and I don't know if you guys have an equivalent, but for those of us who have struggled with relationships, struggled with singleness, and really aren't there, there are many wonderfully, uh, wonderfully godly, wonderful married women, so many, who have said to me and so many other women, oh, don't worry, honey, he's out there for you. And they say, just keep praying, just keep going to church, just keep being faithful. And I believe that propagates the idol. In a godly, you know, in a a pseudo-godly way, I believe that propagates the idol. It looks at it um, as romance, as this great desire, something to be achieved, almost if you twist God's arm, almost if you appease him. But you're almost... It's like an ultimate goal. It's an ultimate goal, yes. And I think we we tie it in, but it's almost like to be with the one is to level up in a sense, um, that that will get you closer to God, that it is so important and uh, and so ultimate, as you said, Dan. I know I'm using gaming terms. Um, I would say, you know, in, in terms of your relationship with God, which needs to be the ultimate thing, your human relationships are a side quest. Obviously, that can benefit you, that can help you serve God better. Um, But for the people who promise that this is inevitable if you work hard enough, it almost makes it a social gospel, and it it propagates the idea of romance being in the ultimate thing. And I have, I mean, after, yeah, so after my most recent breakup, um, I was not, I decided I was not going to just keep quiet about this anymore. And I heard it many times before, but after that, I wanted, uh, for all the people who told me that with such well intentions, I wanted to tell them I was not in this hall for a husband. I said to them, you know, that would be great, but God doesn't owe me that in the slightest. And I said, I will keep living for him. Um, If I'm single the rest of my life, he is worth it. And I said, I I mean, I said it in the nicest way I could, but I said, please don't tell me that. I am satisfied. God is my portion. Anything else, you know, it would be a wonderful side quest. And of course I want that. Don't propagate that idol for me. God is in the center of my life. Don't act like it's inevitable. The smaller things do need to be identified as smaller things. And um, these great desires that we have are good, and they are from God. But He needs to be the central desire. He needs to be the ultimate in our lives. And 
I, I will never say that um, to anyone of any gender, making this promise or this assurance or anything like that. I hope it happens for all of us. That would be wonderful. But um, to be so set on it, to be so focused on this, that is the place that God has to have in our lives. He is the ultimate. This is nothing that you achieve. This is a blessing from God. Um, when he gives it, I think we should receive it graciously. We should receive it as um, in a healthy way, seeking to, in everything, glorify God in our relationships. It needs to be on the right level. And that needs to be all for the glory of God and not for our own fulfillment. For certain men, it's the same thing, that marriage is a checklist, you know, like uh, something to check off on a box. And we probably don't experience it to the same degree as, as women for whatever, whatever reason that that is. But yeah, I can totally see it being very easy to slip into the realm of idolatry when thinking about as your life. That's what you're living for, right. is to find that mate or that spouse. Right. No, your, your point is well taken. Yeah. And you are in no way incomplete. There is this idea that you are somehow incomplete until you've leveled up in that way. You have a wonderful spiritual husband. You are in no way incomplete. As Paul would say, maybe you are actually more qualified to serve God with your unique qualifications that you have. You're certainly less distracted. Yeah, you are less distracted. This is a little redundant because it splits it up for men and women, and I think it's largely the same. 1 Corinthians 7, so maybe Paul was a little bit cynical, but this part... Um, this part is undeniable, and I believe this part is entirely true. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two through 35. Speaking to the Corinthians, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. You can live with that division. Like, Sean, you live with that division, but it, it is something to, to be aware of. He continues, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Mm. Awesome. And I mean... That's exactly it. <laughs> I have a friend who embraces the gift of singleness. Like that is nothing she wants. She wants to like spend her life in ministry for God. And I admire her so much for that. That is what she has chosen. Many of us, singleness doesn't always feel like a gift, but when God gives it, I think we have to take it graciously. And verses like this give me so much perspective. Well, I don't even think you necessarily have to take this as a permanent situation. Obviously, it can be. Mm -hmm. But when you are single, there, there is such an advantage of freedom that you have over against a married person to do things, to go places, and to take your life in your hands in, in a sense like i was thinking about how you went to the congo dan and uh you went on, on a missionary trip there and you know i won't go to the congo partly because not so much because i'm married but because also i have kids and i can't just take my life in my hands and and put myself in a situation where i could i could very likely get kidnapped or or whatever and so i have certain limitations on my freedom until at least my kids were out of the house, and then I probably would go. But um, the advantage of it, whether whether it's for a lifetime or just for a short time, however long it is, it's like rather than looking at that time as, oh, I wish I was married, I wish I was married. Then you get married, and you're like, man, I wish I was single. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like now, you, now you, you've lost it on both ends. Like enjoy the singleness, and if you get married, enjoy the marriage, and the apostle paul says like look if if something goes wrong with the marriage like don't even just serve god you know do that instead of focusing on uh, trying to hitch up all the time you know that's not really the focus of our lives that doesn't mean you you shouldn't pursue someone that's not what i'm saying but i but what i am saying is that not to find salvation not to find wholeness not to find complete completeness uh, a number of years ago i was thinking about all this stuff and and you know, I was in my mid-20s and it was like, you know, I should start moving in that direction of, of settling down. And I forget who I was talking to, but they they gave me a piece of wisdom that has stuck with me. And it's instead of focusing on making yourself attractive to whoever might come along, your focus should be on loving God and attracting somebody that also loves God. Like if you meet a woman, is she going to be attracted to you because of you know physical and material things or is she going to be attracted to you because of of your love for god and that was a sort of a revelation for me because typical wisdom is you know i you know i'll, I'll do this and this and that and and i'll be you know i'll be i'll be attractive to 
members of the opposite sex, but who do I want in my life? Who do I want as a wife? Somebody that loves God and, and keeps God first. Right. And making yourself attractive to somebody like that is the top priority, not doing it in, in material ways. That is such excellent advice because that is one thing um, that can strengthen and grow more beautiful as you get older where, you know, the physical is going to wear down. You've you got a ticking time clock with that. Um, but in terms of getting closer to God and becoming more Christ-like, you can get more beautiful and you can get stronger without the rest of your life. And in that sense, you will only become more attractive to your spouse if that is what you're looking for primarily. Then the opposite is the Samson and Delilah scenario where, I mean, this guy is completely smitten with this woman. You know, he loves her. He wants her. He's not doing it God's way at all. She's a Philistine girl. I don't even think they're married in this thing. They're sleeping together. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Maybe they're married. I don't know. She's really a spy for the Philistines the whole time, right? And I think he knows that. I, 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 when I read that it's record... It's hard to think that he doesn't. Right. But love is but he'll, blind, he, right? he doesn't anyway. And uh, there's one point where he, like he's, he's making stuff up. It's like, yeah, you know, tie my hair into the loom. I'll be just like another guy. You know, yeah, like, she sa- he sets traps for her, and, and then she falls into them. so dysfunctional, right? <laughs> yeah. and, then, uh, and then what happens is she, 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 she gets fooled all these times, and then she says to him, how can you say, I love you, Samson? How can you say, I love you? When your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And then she pressed him hard day after day and urged him until his soul was vexed to death. I I love that. I mean, it's such like an old-fashioned way of saying it, but it's like we know exactly what this is talking about. And then in the end, he tells her, right? But what's the bottom line? She never loved him. Yeah. She was using love against him. Mm-hmm. She was manipulating him. And this, is, and this is something that plays out over and over and over on guys, on girls, either and sometimes working both ways between them, where you set your focus on that other person rather than on God and what God says is right, and it blows up in your hands. You know? So, I mean, there's another powerful negative example beyond just um, Jacob and Rachel. There's Samson and Delilah. Until you give up to the point where you're just going to trust God you're always going to repeat this pattern of, well, it's going to work this time. And that's where you have to, that's the downside of hope and where you have to give up, not give up hope, but, but give up doing it yourself, putting God as your main focus. And then as we've been hammering home and saying over and over again, that God amplifies your natural abilities and your talents and your, he causes your life to flourish mm-hmm. when you put him first. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. He's a designer that he would know how to, uh, how we should live in the best way possible. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So we'll come back on this series next week and consider another one of these idols. Hopefully some of what we said got you thinking, and uh, by no means do we claim to have exhausted this subject. I think this is a, a big subject, just looking at the idol of romance or, or love. We didn't even touch on the love that parents put on their kids, which would be a whole nother subject to talk about where so often parents live for their children and organize their whole lives around them and then the children turn out terribly mm-hmm. thanks for listening guys uh check out redstudio.org and leave us feedback let us know what you think and we'll see you next time thanks so much guys we hope we've given you something to think about please feel free to give us something to think about too by way of comments we always appreciate hearing what you have to say So you probably don't know, maybe you do, but the three of us all started Hebrew class last week and we had our second class this week. So we learned how to say good, well, we already knew, but we were refreshed on how to say goodbye in Hebrew. So of course I'm going to do it this week. Goodbye guys. Shalom. Before wrapping up, I just wanted to share a comment that Brian made on Podcast 70, Getting the Gospel Right. That's a sermon I had shared about the threefold gospel message, the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection. And for me, growing up, I had a one-dimensional gospel. It centered only on the resurrection of Jesus, Romans 10, 9, that if we believe that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And over time, I learned that, the, that his dying for our sins was also a major part of the message of salvation, and then eventually that the kingdom as well is part of this proclamation that I need to believe to be saved. And so once I got all three of those locked into place of the gospel, all three of those elements of the gospel locked into place, the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection, 
a cohesive belief that really changed my life. In other words, I came to understand that Jesus died for my sins, that God raised him from the dead, proving him to be the Messiah who is going to come back and establish God's kingdom. That little truth, that short, simple truth, changed everything. And for me, one of the most exciting aspects of getting the whole gospel was how it opened up the Bible for me. Before that, the Old Testament, especially the prophets, seemed irrelevant. Once I realized that I have a stake in the kingdom prophecies they're preaching about, that I've been grafted into the promises that God has made to the patriarchs that came before me, and that the kingdom is not just for Jews, but it's also for Christians, and that it is this grand hope, it started to really make sense of the Bible for me, and it helped me find motivation to live for God in the present. So, I mean, I I could go on about this, but I wanted to read out Brian's comment. He said on Podcast 70, Getting the Gospel Right, this was great. Had this been the type of gospel message I heard growing up, my passion for knowing God and His Messiah greater and studying all things theologically might have been ignited sooner. Thanks for sharing the tools to share a more complete gospel message. So I encourage you to listen to that. That's podcast episode 70, or before that, I had interview 12 with Jacob Rohr on the gospel, where he shares his own discovery, especially of the kingdom element of the gospel, adding that in, as well as talking about repentance and the importance of obedience to Christ. And then also podcast 71 with Anthony Buzzard is a classic, well worth your time to listen to how he talks about the kingdom which by and large in Christianity today is nearly completely domesticated into just talking about the church or you know, the sphere of Christ's influence in the world today, which, let's face it, Jesus, Jesus does reign in his church. Jesus does reign in our hearts. We are the citizens of the kingdom who have the message of the kingdom, who are looking forward to the kingdom, but the kingdom is still primarily future. So, Getting that straight really, I think, will, like uh, Brian says here, ignite your passion for God. So check that out. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to Restitutio for email notifications so we can let you know when new episodes come out, usually Thursdays and Sundays, although I accidentally posted one for Wednesday last week. Surprise. So there you have it. Uh, Get those email notifications so you know what's going on and what kind of materials we're putting out here. We'll see you next week. We're going to look at worshiping money. And until then, remember, friends, the truth has nothing to fear.